I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Callie Moore. Callie, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, Now, you are a paleontologist and science communicator. Indeed, I am. Um, What does that mean? How do you define those? Right, right. So as a paleontologist, I study the history of life on Earth, and my kind of nine-to-five job is a collections manager. So I'm in charge of a large paleontology collection at the U- at the University of Montana. And as a science communicator, I do all sorts of outreach through the university, so giving tours to little kids. Um, oh, man, I do, uh, I do a lot of tours to little kids on, <laughs> on campus. Uh, but otherwise, my other kind of nine-to-five is is with PBS Eons, the YouTube channel dedicated to the history of life on Earth. And so I do a lot of content consulting for them. I'm a host for that channel. So I kind of have two jobs uh, as my professional job as a collections manager in the museum world, and then also as a science communicator on YouTube. That's really exciting. I know um, you're quite the, you've got quite the fan base here at UBC. (laughs) I know so great. You guys were wonderful. Uh, I loved meeting everybody while I was there. So it was a lot of fun. <laughs> On the podcast, we try to meet people at various stages in their career with various uh, backgrounds. Uh, what's your professional background? Yeah, I would say I'm probably mid-level. I've been at the University of Montana for almost 15 years, so I'm definitely not entry-level anymore. Um, But I'm not like close to retirement or anything. So I'm I'm somewhere in the mid-level. And um, let's see, with Eons, we're in our fifth season. So I feel like we're really hitting our stride now. We're very organized. We have everything scheduled out. Everybody knows their jobs. Um, and we've hired some really amazing people to work on the show. So I'm feeling pretty good, you know, right where I am professionally. My background uh, is, let's see, I have a bachelor's of science in earth science with a minor in paleontology. And that's actually it. Um, I was in my last semester of college and didn't know what I wanted to do and found this job, uh, job announcement. So for the University of Montana and in the education requirements, it said master's preferred, but not required. So I was like, well, I might as well shoot my shot. And I did. And I got it. And so um, instead of going to grad school, I went and started working and making a little bit of money, a little bit of money. <laughs> Wonderful. That's great. I'm glad they um they didn't stick to that master's requirement. It's always good to hire the right person rather than uh, the requirements. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I always love to say that paleontology is a really good field where you can make some major discoveries and major contributions uh, without having to have that advanced degree. Um, here in BC, some of the um, most important discoveries were made by four and five-year-olds. Uh, they found some of the best dinosaur trackways. 
Right. I know kids are always their little eyes, man. Oh, they yeah. just see stuff. And and it, it, they're probably the closest to a professional paleontologist with their sight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have trained my eyes to see fossils. And usually as soon as I get out to a locality and I'm like, OK, what are we looking for? All right. What is the shape of it? OK, then I'm off and I can find whatever I'm looking for. But kids can do it without those prompts. You don't have to tell them anything and they can find it all the time. Even in the States, in all of our national parks, most of our national parks have fossils. And I hear stories every single year, at least two or three of them, that some sub 13 year old found an amazing thing at the park and they were the only one in their group that even saw it. So um, I tip my cap to many a children (laughs) that have made amazing discoveries. They're amazing. Do you have a favorite fossil? So I usually get what's your favorite dinosaur. So my favorite dinosaur is Triceratops. And the reason for that is because almost every single dinosaur dig I have ever been on, I haven't been on a ton of them, but I have been on several and they've all been working on Triceratops remains, babies, adults, everybody in between. So I kind of go with that. And then also I'm a big fan of Land Before Time. And uh, I always really connected with Sarah, you know, headstrong, stubborn, confident. I was like, yeah, that's me. We, I get that. Um, As for like favorite specimen though, like just from our collection, Oh boy. I'd have to say we have some uh tortoise in our collection, but it's like these tortoise got stuck in mud. And so all we have is their lower legs, but their lower legs are completely articulated and all of the little bony osteoderms. So they have these like little bony scutes underneath their skin on their lower legs are preserved in situ. So all these tiny little circles are perfectly where they went, even in life. And we just have their legs. It's like they got stuck in mud, couldn't get out. Somebody scavenged the shell, but the legs were left. <laughs> and, but they're just really amazing fossils to see all those little pieces in perfect in situ where they went when the little thing was alive. So that would probably be one of my favorite specimens like in our collection. I can see why. It's always fun to see the uh, ancestors of creatures that we actually still have today. And it, it, yeah, it's kind of like meeting your friend's grandparents. <laughs> right. Yeah. And what's great about this tortoise is it was found in Montana. And today we know that tortoise cannot live anywhere below freezing. So we know at that time when these tortoise were slowly walking around Montana, that we were above freezing all year long. And like we we were chatting before we started recording this, like we both got snow today. So like <laughs> I got snow, you got snow. It's still snowing here in Montana. And so that wouldn't have happened, you know, 30 million years ago in Montana. There would have been no snow. So it's really cool how much you can just see the change in climate as well as the change of animals over time. Just just one specimen can tell us so much. That's really exciting. You clearly love paleontology. Uh, Why? What got you into this field? (laughs) Aside from land before time. (laughs) Besides land before time. Yes, yes, yes. Um, My dad was a huge nerd 
Like he collected stamps, he had a microscope, um, he lived and grew up in Missouri. And so, um, his family had a lot of farmland. And so whenever they would till, they would find arrowheads and things like that. But he also had a lot of access to limestone. So a lot of the Midwest used to be the bottom of the ocean about 350 million years ago. And so you can find shells and crinoids and all sorts of amazing things. And so he would collect fossils also. And so then I would pull out his collections as a kid, but the fossils were super cool. And so we also had a really great, like natural history library as well. I was not a, I was a, I was privileged in that my parents were nerds, but like we, I didn't have like, like the wood panel library that you walk in. We just had like old bookcases and went to swap and shops and stuff and bought used books. But my dad always got natural history books. So I had books on evolution, history of life, dinosaurs, all that stuff at my fingertips. And so I'd look through these books, I'd identify his fossils. And then I also grew up in Kansas in the Midwest. And so I had a lot of access to that 350 million year old limestone as well. So I would spend hours out in the woods behind my house collecting giant chunks of limestone to bring back to break open to get the fossils out of them. And so I think as soon as like second grade, when I figured out what a paleontologist did, I was like, yep, that's me. That's (laughs) that's what I'm going to do. I only wavered a couple of times as I got older. But by the time I got to college, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is I like this is the path of least resistance for me. My brain does not resist any of this information. It's like a sponge, like they can't tell me enough. And so that's kind of this just where I went with it. And it's been that way ever since. And I still every I feel like every single fossil fact I learn I keep on to it. It just, I'm like, okay, something else has to be knocked out and I'll keep this random fossil thing. Um, but yeah, I just, I, that's, that's it for me. That's my thing. That's totally understandable. I'm from Manitoba and we have uh, the same limestone or similar limestone and it's, it's beautiful, uh, as well as being fascinating. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that you were pretty much on a linear path uh, toward paleontology and towards where you are right now. Uh, In your career, have you faced any setbacks or you mentioned you wavered a couple of times? What was that about? Yeah. So in high school, you know, angsty teen, um, nobody ever told me I couldn't do this. But for whatever reason, I was like, wow, paleontology isn't like a real career. You don't just like go out and just do this, you know? And so I decided I was going to teach. I was going to be a high school biology teacher. And so that's what I actually started college as was a high school biology teacher. And, um, I was taking classes. I was not happy with anything. I was not happy with the program, but as part as my kind of like gen eds, you had to take a physical sciences course. And like within the first week of that class, I was like, this is it. This, these are my people like, um, I'm doing this. And I changed my major immediately and switched over into the earth sciences and added the paleo minor and just went from there and never looked back. And I don't regret that decision at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not at all. Not even a little bit. So that was probably the only thing that I've really ran into professionally. I have run into a couple of superiors um, that have discouraged me or put up roadblocks, especially into getting a graduate degree. Um, Those people are now gone and new people are in charge. And the winds of change could be approaching for some graduate work. Um, I 
it's it's a weird thing. I've gone so long without having a graduate degree and I feel fairly successful in what I've been able to do with it that I've kind of written it off. Like, mm-hmm. eh, meh. but it would be good to have a couple of letters after the end of my name, you know, I don't know. So, um, I mean, I work on a college campus. It's right there. So it's kind of easy access. So we'll see how that shakes out. But um, but for the most part, I've had a pretty easy battle with academia. It's It's been a pretty easy flow um, to get to where I am today. Good. Well, I'm glad the winds of change are coming and you've got a supportive admin. <laughs> and um, I hope that that streak continues through the grad program because I know it can be a slog. <laughs> Yes, yes. That's also working in academia for almost 15 years, but not being in academia. I have seen the trials and tribulations of grad students for many, many years now. And so like, I am very aware of the process, which also makes it a little bit more intimidating to get into. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people, you know, they go through undergrad and then they jump into a grad degree and they're still all bright eyed and bushy tailed and like, woohoo. And all this stuff is washing over them for the first times in their lives. And I've had like over a decade of washing this happen. And so like, uh, it's a little bit more like, oh, I know exactly what I'm getting myself into. Yeah. And I'm not so bright eyed and bushy tailed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I Either way, I know I'm going to be fine. Oh, yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, we'll see. We'll see. You're a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in your career, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Oh, yes. Every day. I mean, I do all the fact checking for Eon. So every single script for YouTube, every single script for TikTok. Um, I write a lot of our copy for social media. Um, I, I read a ton and it is amazing. Like, I feel like I have a pretty large encyclopedia of knowledge in my head about the history of life. And every once in a while, I'll get these scripts and I'm like, <gasps> For real? Like, no, no, really? I had no idea. And then I get on these rabbit holes and I have to learn more. Um, But professionally, I have kind of like rediscovered stuff. So within our collection, we have these really amazing soft body preserved amphibians. So like the skin, the muscle, the organs, like the external gills on salamanders, uh, little soft body preserved tadpoles, like teeny tiny, maybe only a centimeter long. We had these in our collection and I've known about them since I started, but I figured since they were so amazing, they're so wonderful that these had been published to Kingdom Come, you know, like obviously nobody's going to let these go by, right? Mm. Wrong. They did. They completely ignored them. They're mostly like little footnotes. And so I have kind of revived the research in that area. I got a permit through the Forest Service to go back and check out the site. I have yet to find the vertebrate layer, but there's still a ton of wonderful insect fossils, um, plant fossils. And now I'm working with the Forest Service to reopen the site because it's just a road cut, like this random little forestry road uh, up in the mountains. It's just a road cut. It's probably only like... mm, let's see, 15 meters long, maybe. So about 30 feet long, somewhere in there. And um, 
and it has slumped. So the hillside has kind of moved down with gravity. And so there's not a lot of good, like, stratigraphic data anymore. Like, it's not in situ. This is not the exact place where these rocks were. And so to do any good dating and to kind of give the evolution of what I think is this lake that formed we we need we need better rock. And so I've been talking to the Forest Service and hoping that they'll come out with a backhoe so we can dig in about a meter um, into this this site and get back to in situ rock. And this may all happen next summer. I'm really hoping it does. Um, there's a grad student now um, that I'm kind of working with at the University of Florida who is re-describing all of the plant fossils. Um, I have somebody lined up possibly to do the insects. Um, I'm working with a research at at the Royal. Is he at the ROM or is he at the Royal Terrell? He's at one of your all's <laughs> wonderful Canadian museums and he's got the vertebrates right now. And so we're hoping to describe those soon as well. So there could technically maybe someday in the next, I don't know, three to five years be an entire memoir that is written about this locality, this little gym up in the mountains. And it's it has everything I've ever wanted in a field site. Like it's only an hour away from town hour and a half away from town so I could like day trip it if I needed to. It's remote, but not super remote. It's in the mountains. It's pretty. There's a little reservoir lake, like a half a mile down the road where you can camp. So if you want to stay there, there's easy access to camping. There's hiking trails. It's a road cut. I grew up in Kansas. That's how you do geology and paleontology is with road cuts. Um, so it's very familiar. So it's like, it checks all my boxes. It's like great. So that's probably one of the things that I'm like the most proudest of and obsessed with at the moment. I go through a lot of obsessions, but that's probably the top one right now. That's really exciting and really cool. Uh, soft tissue fossils are always, yeah, so wonderful. Um, and it, you also touched on something about museums. People think that they're super organized, but we're a mess. <laughs> we're constantly having to go on digs in our own collection to find things and uh, being surprised by the gems that we have hidden away that we didn't know about. <laughs> Right? I know. Yes, uh, museums are a mess. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm still trying to not make a mess in my own collection right now. So, but it's amazing how many fossils are found just by people wandering around collections like knowing that you have something maybe and then just turning a researcher loose in your collection and they find all sorts of stuff. Every single year, new species are described from museum collections. And sometimes they were collected over 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And they're just now being published as something new today, which I think is really wonderful. And it shows the the importance of caring for and keeping and funding yes. museum <laughs> collections. <laughs> now, you mentioned doing field work. Um, that's a big topic in this podcast. I love hearing field stories. I've never done it myself, uh, but apparently the field is this crazy place where things that are very frustrating for you uh, happen, but they're very entertaining for me. Uh, do you have any field stories you'd care to share? <laughs> Most of my field stories have to do with injury. Um, 
I'm not the most graceful creature on the planet, but one of the very first times I ever went out into the field, um, <clears throat> I was still an undergrad and I was working on this project through the St. Louis Science Museum. And they were bringing teachers and the public out to eastern Montana to learn geology, paleontology, collect some fossils, and then take all this stuff back to the classroom with them to, to have a better um, understanding of evolution, paleontology, history of life, all that stuff. So this is one of the first times I've ever been out to Eastern. Well, this is the first time I've ever been to Montana, to Eastern Montana, really been out in a remote field setting. And we ended up going to this incredibly difficult place to get to, of course, like first day, like right out of the, <laughs> the like the hat, like, all right, here we go. Here's this incredibly steep cliff. You got to walk down. And I was dumb. And like, I bought this teeny tiny camelback. It probably carried like maybe a liter of water and we're supposed to be out there for the entire day. It's like in the hundreds. It's so hot. I run out of water. I've hiked all over the place. I'm absolutely exhausted. And then you have to climb back up this giant steep cliff okay. um, to get back to where we were parked. So at the end of the day, I'm just, I'm, I am dragging ass. I am just, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. This is it. This is the end of Cali. And I tripped <sighs> And I landed with my hand in a prickly pear cactus. Oh. Full force. Full force. Just boom. Landed in this cactus. Oh, my God. Luckily, we had an EMT guy on the crew with us. And he was just like, well, I'll pick out what I can see now. But they're going to fester out you know, for the next few days. And so every single day after I'd get back into camp, he'd be like, come on, Callie, it's time. And he'd wave me over and I'd go sit with my hand in his lap and he would just dig out all these prickly pear spines every single day until the very end. My hand was all scabbed over. It was super gross. Oh, that was a, that was not my best moment. Um, one of my favorite moments, though, in the field was actually while I was up here at the University of Montana. And I happened to just tag along uh, with a student field trip, uh, one of the classes. They went out to like Western Oregon or something and they were looking at terrains. And and back in these days, uh, I still uh, drank a little bit of alcohol, maybe a little bit too much alcohol. And I brought out this really high powered like blueberry beer. It was like seven and a half percent. I do not. This Kids don't do this. This is so dumb. Um, and we were at high elevation and I didn't realize that we were going to be at such high elevation, but we were oh. at pretty high elevation. And I have this high powered beer and I'm just like, woo, yeah, partying because that's seems what you do when you go out in the field. You got to party. I wake up the next morning with one of the worst hangovers of my life. And this was a day that they were going to like hike up to the top of this mountain to see this limestone outcropping. And I was like, there's no way there's no way I can make it up this 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 mountain there. I feel like death. And so this wasn't part of a grade. Again, I'm just tagging along. I had my own vehicle. I could really do whatever I wanted. And so I was like I, I was talking to the professor and I was like, I can't I can't. I'm just not feeling it today. I just I can't do it. I didn't say I'm hungover, but I was just like, yeah, I'm not just I'm just not feeling too great today. And he was like, OK. And he was constantly always comparing me to some of his old grad students that he had had in the past. 
And there was this one little shale hill that you could get ammonites out of, but nobody had ever found a full ammonite. And he had sent a lot of his past grad students. And he was like, well, this one grad student, he could only find parts and bits and pieces. So I doubt you'll be able to find anything either, but you might as well stay down here and look for it anyways. And I was like, challenge accepted. (laughs) And so I went Um, this shale hill was at the perfect incline that I could literally just stand up and lean against it Mm -hmm. and just like, just lay on it basically. (laughs) And I just sat there like right next to my face, just flipping over little pieces of shale. And I did that for actually not very long. And I found two full ammonites and, uh, and I was like, okay, that's good enough. I found two. Nobody's ever found one. I'll call that a win. Went back to the car and slept off the rest of my hangover. (laughs) Later on in the afternoon, the class comes back down. Professor comes back down. He's all hoity-toity. And he was like, oh, what kind of fragments did you find? And I was like, well, you know, I guess I I didn't find much. I I did find two specimens. And he was like, oh, 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 do you you found two specimens? And I was like, boom, I found these. (laughs) And his eyes got like as big as saucers. He just couldn't even fathom that I could do this thing that he had asked me to do that nobody else had been able to do. And he was just shocked. He was shocked and amazed. But those specimens went on to be published um, as uh, index fossils that officially aged that shale bed. Um, And so, boom, yay. Yay for Callie and her hangover. Um, (laughs) It worked out well that time. But um, again, I don't don't encourage kids to do that. But uh, it was it was good for me. It was good for me. Although lying down on cool shale when you're hungover does sound like the best way to to do paleontology. <laughs> oh, it was oh, it was great. Yeah, I just like I said, I just like kind of leaned up against this shale hill and just sat there and like flipped over pieces of shale. And I think, you know, within a couple of hours, I found both of them. Like I found one and I kept going and I found another one shortly thereafter. And I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm done. And then, (laughs) and then I got to just nap the rest of the day and it was good. Felt great. (laughs) Many of our local scientists, uh, when they talk about their field work, they talk about grizzly bears and, uh, you know, mostly bears. (laughs) You've got cacti. (laughs) Cacti. Yep. Yep. Cacti be getting me all the time. Um, I've, I've now am very aware of cacti. Most of the time out in Eastern Montana, it's rattlesnakes. You got to be aware of snakes. Um, luckily I grew up with rattlesnakes. A lot of the places that we went in the field in Kansas had rattlesnakes. So I know how to deal with them. I know how to walk loud. Um, Missoula and around this side of the state, does have a lot of bears, uh, but I don't really do a lot of research out here. I'm assuming there's black bears out near that um, site that I was mentioning earlier with the soft body preservation, but I've never even seen, I've never seen prints. I've never seen poop. I've never, I've never seen one, but I'm assuming the black bear are out there, but I have bear spray with me. We, I, I mean, I live in bear country, so I'm also pretty confident with my abilities with bear or at least avoiding them, avoiding the confrontation, just period. So, um, but yeah, I have had stories because, um, one of the old professors at our university worked up in Vancouver all the way up into Alaska working on the terrains. Oh, wow. um, and he talks about being like dropped off in the middle of nowhere in helicopters with shotguns, you know, to yeah. worry about grizzly and brown bear and stuff. And I'm like, ah, 
no, thank you. No, no, thank you. I'm no. I mean, the helicopter ride, yes, but the grizzly bear, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think I'm scared of of the snakes. At least you can see the bear coming sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. (laughs) Now, you clearly love uh, science communication, um, you're doing it right now, and paleontology, but why should the rest of the world care about either? Why are they important? Right. And this is always a challenge uh, for, for paleontology in particular. I think science communication is pretty easy to understand why it's important to be able to explain science to non-science people. Um, You get them excited. You tell them why what you're doing is important and all this stuff. So I think science communication is kind of just rolled in. But being able to really get people behind paleontology beyond dinosaurs. Like, okay, you're finding dinosaurs. This is really cool. They look great um, in museums and rich dudes' houses and stuff like that. But like, what's what's the point? A lot of times with paleontology, you know, you're learning about the past to better understand what's happening now and also understanding the future. So we know that climate has changed a lot and we know that climate is changing today. But what are the effects of that climate change? What are the effects if it gets worse? What are the effects if it gets better? You know, so climate change is a big one. And we can look very, very, very deep into the past. And we have this wonderful climate climate record. And so we can see rates of change over time. So a lot of times uh, when you talk about climate change, it's getting a lot easier. There's a lot less climate change deniers out there as there used to be. I think people are really, they're feeling it. They're experiencing it now. You know, these people, even people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s are experiencing weather patterns that they've never, ever experienced in their entire lives before. So something is changing now. And so to get past that, you're like, okay, yep, climate has changed. It has changed this whole time. The whole time the earth has been here, climate has changed. But the important part is the rate of change. And so right now in our current situation, the rate of change seems to be more extreme than any point in the past that we can find. And so that's really scary. And so what happens when climate changes really, really fast? So we can look back at the fossil record, look back at the climate record and see like the, uh, Paleocene Eocene thermal maximum, the PETM, was a very rapid spike of hot that happened right at the at the boundary between the Paleocene and the Eocene. And it still isn't even as quick as what we're seeing now. But all of this research that we do in the past is usually helping to um, apply some knowledge to what's happening now. So we can take all these readings now and then compare it to the past. And so I think that's the real important part. I always rag on dinosaur paleontologists because they think they're the best. Uh, but like I, a lot of times I have trouble with the point of dinosaur paleontology. Mm-hmm. Like what you're finding is very super cool, but all the dinosaurs, well, all the non-avian dinosaurs are dead. So if you're studying bird evolution and how birds evolved in the past, okay, that's great because again, that's giving us some information on current bird evolution and where birds could be heading in the future. But like dinosaurs though? Like, I can't believe they still can get money because I feel like there's no applicable. I'm going to get so much hate for this. Oh, my God. You may have to cut this out. (laughs) I'm digging myself my own grave right now. Um, 
oh no but like what what does a dinosaur tell us we can do a lot of cool stuff with dinosaur bones that would probably help us um better preserve other bones better research bones like cutting bones apart and looking at the histology that really kind of got started in dinosaur paleontology so i'll give them that um (laughs) So there's a lot of cool things to learn about dinosaurs, but the applicable sciences part to our modern current predicaments there. I feel like there's not a lot of there's not a lot of overlap like, OK, uh, sweet. Triceratops lived in herds. What good does that do us? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, right. Paleontology yeah. tells us where we came from, uh, but dinosaurs don't. They're dead end. <laughs> Yeah, they were they were a failure. A big giant space rock took them out, you know. So, anyway, it's like like I said. Oh man, I'm gonna hear about this later. <laughs> I love dino. Don't don't get this wrong. I love dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. I love they're probably some of my ancient my favorite ancient forms of life. I mean, they're just like they're huge monsters, you know. Like <laughs> who couldn't love dinosaurs? But sometimes I I in the day of limited amount of grant funding how dinosaur paleontologists are still able to get grants <laughs> that aren't like nsf grants big big grants not like society of vertebrate paleontology grants like yeah those those are probably going to go to dinosaur people but like yeah big nsf grants that are looking at big problems and cuz nsf is getting really applicable like how does this have any cadence to our current situation, you know, like they really want to know how your science is going to be affecting modern humans and your broader impacts and things like that. And so it's just, uh, anyways, uh, there will always be dinosaur paleontology and there's always going to be money for it. But sometimes I feel like it's hard to, to justify it when there's so many other animals and, and things that actually give us real data about, modern human situation and our future situation, but eh, whatever. They're the to keep the public on the side of paleontology. They do. They serve their purpose well (laughs) as our big charismatic cheerleaders. That's for sure. Agreed. And I love how you took um, a field that we always associate as being stuck in the past, paleontology, and really cast in the light of the field of the future, uh, climate science. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really cool take that I hadn't thought about. Oh yeah. That's basically, I tell all of my paleo student, well, they're volunteers for me, but, um, I call them my students. Uh, they, I tell them, I'm like, whenever you start thinking about your future research, figure out how to work climate change into it. Like those buzzwords are very important for grants. And so like, how, how is, how is this going to give us any knowledge about current climate change? Are you um, creating techniques or um, studies or something like that, that is going to help us do this in the present or give us more information? I'm like, always try to work climate change <laughs> into whatever you're studying. Um, Cause I, that is definitely the biggest issue that's facing modern humans right now is climate change. So we'll see. We'll see how far it gets them. That's usually one of my top lines of advice to these students is trying to work climate change or looking at whatever problem they're looking at through a climate change lens or a climate lens, um, because I think it's really important. You got to learn the magic words. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think I know the answer to this, but um, what's the best part of your work? What's your favorite part of your job? You know, 
Like eons, obviously, is a lot of fun. And I love all the people that I work with. Yesterday, we just had our pitch meeting. So every other week, we have a pitch meeting where we sit down and 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 pitch ideas. It's mostly for TikTok. Um, but a lot of our, we call our YouTube channel Prime. So Eons Prime is our YouTube channel. Um, so we actually have come up with a lot of Prime episode ideas in these little TikTok pitch meetings. But it is just some of the, these are my favorite meetings I have ever been a part of in my entire career. Like you just get a bunch of nerds with a bunch of different backgrounds and you put them in the same room and you're like, one up me, you know, like, well, I came up with, oh, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And we get on all these random tangents and it's just like a really good time. I, I wish we could record them because they are gems. You pitch each other through TikTok? For TikTok. Oh, for TikTok. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we make TikToks, uh, Eons does, but we, we need, we need fuel for the fire type of thing. So we have these meetings to try to figure out, you know, what 60 second thing are we going to say about this publication? Um, But those meetings are probably some of the favorite things that I do. One of the my favorite things that I do. The other part of it is um, I actually really like public speaking and it not a lot of people like public speaking, which is fine. Um, I have gotten really comfortable with it over all these years. Um, children will humble you oh, yes. and they will turn you into a good public speaker. Um, the more you work with children, the better public speaker you're going to be. And so all of my time giving all of these school t- has really helped in that way. But I do. I love going and giving lectures and telling people about um, obscure localities or something like that. But doing it in such a entertaining way that you make them excited. And so, for example, while I was at UBC... I gave a talk about this uh, locality in Montana. It's about 325 million years old. And it has a bunch of fish, like bony fish, cartilaginous fish, a ton of invertebrates, including shrimps and horseshoe crabs and all sorts of weird stuff. Even this little alien goldfish creature that's not even a goldfish. (laughs) They think it's a mollusk now. But anyways, like... If somebody were to just be like, and this is this formation and here's these things, you know, like people would be falling asleep. Mm-hmm. But I've given this talk a couple of times and I've actually had like vertebrate paleontologists, dinosaur paleontologists come up to me afterwards and they're like, dang, now I want to study fish, you know, like <laughs> and that's just like the biggest like compliment that they could give me is that I was so entertaining and I had so much fun and I had so much enthusiasm about this subject that it makes them want to study it. And I feel like I've, I'm really kind of finding my niche there is with public speaking and doing lectures. And so I'm really trying to do more of those. I'm excited in January, I'll be giving a talk in Kansas about these two very obscure localities in Kansas. Um, I bet most people are anticipating me talking about the Western Interior Seaway and the big giant tylosaurs and the pterosaurs. And I'm like, no, <laughs> let's talk about some insects. That's what we're going to talk about. Giant cockroaches and giant dragonflies, because oh, that's, that's what the public wants to hear about, you know. <laughs> so, but I'm really excited about that talk because I guarantee most of the people in the room have never heard about either one of these localities, but they're incredibly important localities for the time 
the time frame that I'm talking about here. Uh, again, I, I keep finding myself in the Carboniferous, so 300 to 350 million years ago. But um, I'm very excited to give that talk because I love insects, so it doesn't take me much to get very, very excited. Well, it doesn't take much to get me very excited about fossils, period. But um, insects in particular, I just find absolutely fascinating. And so fossils of them is like two of my favorite things in one. Um, so yeah, giving lectures and talking to the public and getting the public excited about what they probably didn't anticipate being excited about is one of my favorite things. You're not just a scientist, you're also a performer and you clearly draw up the energy of your audience. And when you convert someone to your cause, uh, it's just like supercharging. <laughs> it's like a Red Bull to your your soul. A hundred percent agree. Now I have to ask the inverse question. Uh, not everything is sunshine and roses. Uh, so what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Uh, emails. <laughs> the endless, the endless stream of emails. No, that's not actually that bad. Um, paleontology has its own like... <laughs> dark side, if you will. Not really paleontology, the field, but people against paleontology. So young earth creationists, <laughs> um, meh, extreme science denialists really like to go after paleo. And so in the beginning of my career, I would interact with these people. <laughs> and I had come to find out that they are not asking genuine questions. They don't want their minds changed. They are very set in their ways. And really all they want to do is argue with you. And so I don't have time for that anymore. So I don't engage with these people anymore. And they usually let me know exactly what the type of person they are when they come up to me and they ask me, well, how do you know how old they are? They, they don't ask like, how do you guys figure out how old these are? They come at you very like, how do you know it's this old? And I'm like, oh, it's one of you. And I'm like, oh, we have several <laughs> different ways. There's radiometric dating, there's relative dating, but um, it's a lot of science and blah, blah, blah. And then I basically just turn away from them and ignore them. I don't engage with them anymore. Um, with YouTube, however, we kind of welcome them uh, because they give us engagement on the channel. So they watch the video, they comment, they usually stir up a lot of drama in the comment section. So people are typing replies, you know, like eons is completely hands off. Like we don't do anything. It's our normal community of commenters that are coming at these people like, oh my God, why are you even here? You know, but like the algorithm doesn't see good or bad comments. The algorithm sees engagement. And so we just have this joke now, hashtag engagement. And so like, yeah, come to our channel, freak out in our comment section for sure. You're giving us the views and you're giving us the engagement. So like, that's great. Thank you for helping the channel, even though you don't believe in any of it, you know. So now it's kind of funny, but ugh, having to come up against that constantly, like anti-evolutionists and things like that, it's just, it's exhausting. And that's why, like, uh, now I'm, I'm very, I could take these people down very easily, but I'm just like, you don't want that. You just want to try to make me look foolish. You want me to give you a platform and I'm not going to do it. Um, but yeah, that's definitely like the worst side of, of paleontology is, is the anti-evolutionists and the, the young earth creationists. Ugh, they're, they're an exhausting lot of people. That's what I, that's there. 
tough to deal with sometimes, but yeah, definitely the worst. <laughs> Yes. Exactly. And there are people that don't know or come from backgrounds, but they're curious mm -hmm. and they will approach their line of questioning much more sensitively than the people that want to argue with you. The more you deal with the people, the more you'll be able to tell like, oh, this person just wants to argue or this person is genuinely interested and curious. And they may have been told a lot of wrong things before and being able to approach it delicately and be like, oh, yeah, I can see how you would think that, you know, I totally get that. Here's here's what my side of the field has done for the past 200 years into looking at this problem, you know, and being able to direct them to some literature or some websites or even just your own experiences. If if you happen to grow up in um, a religious background and you find yourself leaving it and now you're in paleo and you're an evolutionist, being able to draw on your own experiences of change and what opened your eyes. And so there's definitely a place to meet people if they want to be met. But being able to tell which people are genuinely curious and they have a lot of great questions and they may just have been misinformed their entire life or being in the United States, depending on what state you're in, is going to tell you whether or not you're going to get a good education in evolution or history of life. So some red states, you don't ever talk about it. And some blue states, you have a really good lesson on it. And so you may just be meeting people that have horrible backgrounds in science. And so if they're like genuinely interested, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly compared to the argumentative ones. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yes, picking your battles and using your energy wisely is incredibly important. I think paleontology draws a lot of that attention from that crowd because it is such an exciting science. People don't get that excited for physics or chemistry. Um, but dinosaurs, you know, my paleontologist always says it's a gateway science. <laughs> it lures you into the other sciences. And so if they can cut that off, then they can basically kill science. Right. Exactly. And it is. It is totally the gateway drug to science for sure. Paleo is um, almost every single kid can tell you their favorite dinosaur regardless of their background. <laughs> like they know dinosaurs. You can't keep dinosaurs from kids, no matter how hard you try. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with that statement a hundred percent. And they will know how to pronounce it and mm -hmm. you will have never heard of it. <laughs> yes. I have had a couple of kids on tours like, well, what about this? What about this? And I'm like, damn, I should know <laughs> this. Why is this dinosaur not coming to me right now? Like, oh my gosh, I'm getting shown up by a seven-year-old, you know? So yeah, they are brilliant humans. That's for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> now I'm curious, um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your career or studies in any way? I mean, I'm a white female, so I got the female minority part, but otherwise, not really. Um, paleontology, well, geosciences in particular, is one of the least diverse sciences 
of all. Actually, I think it is the least diverse science. Now, we have come to terms with this. <laughs> Geosciences knows this, and we are working very hard to get over this hurdle and become more inclusive and to become more diverse because we all understand the more diverse your group of scientists is, the better the science is going to come out because everybody's coming from different backgrounds and they're going to look at problems differently. But but it is tragically an underrepresented field for sure for minorities. Um, I think that being a woman has actually helped me. Um, I had access to being able to apply to scholarships that were only for women. Um, so that cuts down the playing field pretty quickly. Um, like diversity hires sound awful but they do open doors you know so like if you can get in even if you're a diversity hire run with it prove yourself like be a good be a good member of your team type of thing um but like i said i think that geosciences it will get better it's gonna take a while it's gonna take a while but um we've at least recognized that we have a major issue um and it needs to get better but Women paleontologists, I always get kind of like blinded by this because I follow so many women paleontologists or female identifying paleontologists on social media. And so to me, I feel like, man, there's a bunch of us because like I don't I mean, I follow a lot of guys, too, but I follow so many um, female identifying paleontologists that it's like, oh, there's a ton of us, right? And then you go to these big meetings and you're like, oh, no, I just like literally follow all of them. <laughs> and that's us. That's us. The Twitter bubble. Yeah. 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 You, you make your own little bubble and you feel like, oh, this is the way it is. And then, like <laughs> I said, you go, you go to a big meeting and you're like, oh, no. But again, I think the female male ratio is getting a lot better faster than the POC um, like ratio. That one is very slow. Um, and that's the one that geosciences is really like, oh my God, this needs to be better. <laughs> Everybody needs to study the world around them, regardless of how you identify or the color of your skin or anything like that. You know, like, oh my God, it's very important that everybody have a bigger worldview and also understand deep time, like time changes, like a million years is not that long, even though it feels like a long time to a human that you may be lucky, you will be very lucky if you make it to a hundred years. And so, but having more people that can think in much bigger time scales is very important to a whole bunch of our current situations. So we're getting there. We'll get there. I have faith that we will get there. Um, it's just, it'll take a little bit of time and effort on everybody's part. But yep. Oh, geosciences. <laughs> Hopefully it won't take deep time. <laughs> no, it won't take deep time. No, 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 no. Maybe a generation to bring it up, but like, it, it'll get there. It'll get there. Well, that actually does sound optimistic. I mean, if those scholarships worked for you and helped you become one of the leading science educators in maybe the world, um, then <laughs> the scholarships are, are worth it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're doing their job. And I took full advantage of everything that I could apply to for sure mm -hmm. when I was an undergrad. Um, and, and it helped me. I have no idea why and how I got the job in Montana. Like, I don't know. I 
I don't know. I mean, I had a lot of background. So I had been out into the field in eastern Montana. I was the assistant curator of my undergraduate campus museum. Like I had had a lot of, you know, background for the job that I was coming into, but I still cannot believe I got the job. I've met a couple of people that applied to the job as well. And I'm like, wow, you should have got the job. (laughs) I'm assuming that they just didn't have the funding to pay these people what they were anticipating. But me coming out of undergraduate and seeing the amount of money, I'm like, I'm rich. And I wasn't. I was not rich, not even close. (laughs) But like, it looked like a lot more money than I had ever made in my life. And so now I see that I'm incredibly underpaid. (laughs) That's okay. That's all right. I live in a pretty base. So that's, that's, that's okay. But yeah, so again, I'm still kind of shocked, even after all these years that I got the job in the first place. So one thing we've uh, all had to deal with, uh, regardless of our gender or or race, um, has been COVID and the pandemic. So uh, how did that impact your work? Or did it? Uh, I got a lot quieter. Uh, had a lot more time to myself. That's for sure. I didn't have any volunteers coming in. It was very boring. Um, but I did a lot more digital outreach. So virtual outreach, talking to classrooms all over the country, like that increased incredibly. And I think that was probably, you know, we all have a very love, hate, mostly hate relationship with Zoom now, but I can say that it has put me in contact with a ton more students than I would have ever talked to without having so many Zoom meetings, getting into so many classrooms. Like I talked to all of the sixth graders in like lower Los Angeles, California one time, like, uh, like 300 kids or something like that, you know, just on a Zoom. And, um, I would have never got that opportunity had it not been for COVID. So I think COVID did a lot for virtual learning, for outreach. um, And that's mainly what I did, like giving a ton of virtual talks during that time, virtual tours of the collection, virtual tours of the exhibit space. And I know most other paleontologists and museum professionals, yep, that was basically their pandemic too, was on Zoom with a funny background, you know, like... It was a lot, but I welcome that now. And so I still am working with some of the the facilities and institutions that I had done virtual learning with, and I'm still doing that now. Um, So it opened up all of these avenues to do more outreach, more science communication. So while it was a huge bummer, it did have some silver linings here and there, but that's basically how it impacted. Nobody was going out into the field. You had a lot of depressed paleontologists, but um, for the most part, I think we got some pretty good techniques out of it, I guess. Okay. I'm very happy with that. You uh, made me feel that it wasn't just me. (laughs) (laughs) No. Oh, no. Uh, No. Basically, everybody that I know that works in a museum immediately pivoted to virtual outreach and and started whole series and interview series and just like but uh yeah like everybody pivoted immediately and it was actually very very impressive how fast um educators across mm-hmm. the board were able to 
transition into this digital learning sphere. And I know that it was very hard. And I know especially K through 12 teachers are a million percent burnt out at this point in time. But what they were able to complete in like three months or less is nothing short of phenomenal. And I have to give like a massive round of applause to K through 12 teachers because I don't think they get the I don't think they get the just reserve like of what they did, of what they had to do and the hill that they had to climb to get over that during the pandemic. It was just incredible. They didn't get it before the pandemic when their job was so much easier and they're still not getting it now um, or during the pandemic when it was next to impossible. Social media, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but museum Twitter was so inspirational, seeing what other people were doing and learning from what they were doing. Um, it was a huge help. Mm-hmm. Oh, I know. It was it was great. It was absolutely. And the resources that we have now from that came out of the pandemic are gold. I mean, they're mm-hmm. going to be used for a very long time and built off of we learned a lot of lessons, <laughs> learned a lot of lessons uh, with with good old Zoom in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but now we're I think we're all better for it. Uh, we all have a better set of skills to deal with virtual learning and inclusivity. You know, it's you have to meet people where they are. And so bringing, you know, let's say dinosaur paleontologists into the classroom in a state that doesn't have a lot of dinosaur paleontology to get kids excited about history of life and all these things, you know, it's not always available to actually bring them physically into the classroom, but being able to do it virtually is huge. And so also I saw a lot of virtual field trips pop up. Uh, Stanford has one of the best that I've seen. The, the resolution on their tour is amazing and it's an outcrop and they have a whole list of questions that you can ask and you can go right up to the rock and look at it super, super close. And again, if you have anybody that's disabled or uncomfortable going out into the field for whatever reason, this is a really good way to give them some experience in the field with not actually having to physically go there. Um, so I think for inclusivity and just um, bringing more kids into the science fold, at least, um, the pandemic did some good things for that, even though, again, huge bummer, huge bummer. But <laughs> digital outreach is something that's always um on a museum's uh, to-do list mm-hmm. and yet we never do it. No, because they come <laughs> so to you. it forced us to. Yeah. 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 It definitely forced us to complete the to-do list. I feel like. Yeah. And I feel like most of us are Luddites at the best of times. I certainly am. Or I call myself an idiot. Uh, <laughs> email, e-commerce, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. If anyone's listening to you right now and uh, wants to follow in your footsteps, what advice or um, experience or courses would you recommend they take? Or should they be taking courses? Should they just be doing? Well, so there's two ways to look at this. Uh, If you want to go into the more professional paleontology side. So I always say that paleontology is the marriage of two sciences. You need to understand the rocks to find the fossils and you need to understand biology to understand the fossils that you're finding. So you really need, uh, if you want to be a paleontologist, you need either uh, your major being geology and a minor being biology or your major being biology and your minor being geology. You need to really get into both of those fields very deeply. And so I was a 
earth science, so geology major, and I did a paleo minor, but my paleo minor was like straight up biology, like really high level biology classes. Luckily, I had really good um, relationships with all these biology professors. And so they let me in without the prereqs, which good or bad, uh, had to fly by the seat of my pants and learn like mole cell and genetics on my own. But like, you know, whatever. I made it through. I did it. But there was some real high level biology classes that I had to take. Um, but if you if that's where you're going, you can also find programs that do offer a lot more paleo. So there's not a whole lot of paleo majors out there anymore. I think there's only a couple of schools that actually have a like you can major in paleontology. I think a lot of them still have um minors and then focuses. So like, okay, you're in the integrated biology, but you're mostly studying evolution and history of life. Um, so definitely take a whole bunch of geology, sedimentary geology, because that's where you actually find the fossils um, and a lot of biology. So if you know you want to study dinosaurs, be sure to take a lot of classes on reptiles and birds. If you want to study mammals someday, take mammalogy, you know, kind of try to focus um, your modern biology classes to what you think you want to study in the ancient past. So if you want to look at ecosystems, take a lot of ecology classes, learn how modern ecosystems work, and then you can apply that to the past. Now, if you want to be a science communicator, there's nothing stopping you right now. Like you can do that on your own. Um, colleges are finally starting to see that science communication is incredibly important. And so even um, the University of Montana has a certificate now in science communication. So if your campus has one of those, definitely do that. Get that on. It just looks good on your resume. And I'm sure you're going to learn a lot. Um, but you can do science communication right now. You can do it through your own personal social media. You can volunteer at a museum and give tours and do that sort of thing. Start your own podcast. Um, you can do a lot for science communicating just on your own without having to go to school or something like that for it. Um, so depending on which way you want to go, just jump in, just start. Um, and you're going to get better. The more you practice, the better you'll get um, with anything in life, truly. But definitely with science communicating, <laughs> the more you practice and work with kids, the better you're going to get. <laughs> and don't be afraid of bombing because you are going to bomb every now and then. And that's how you learn. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Failure is a part of success. Mm -hmm. So you learn from your mistakes and you get better after that and you build onto them. Because like I said, I was not a good like I was not a good public speaker when I first started. Like I still got sweaty palms and got nervous and uh, got into that kind of monotone. I don't care kind of um like feel to it, you know, and then I, I learned that, especially after I got eons, how important edutainment is. Mm -hmm. So entertaining education, edutainment, um, you're performing. Like once I figured out that a, a public speaking is you're performing, you're, you're acting, you're, you're on, if you will. Um, and, once I kind of got that, I was like, oh, like the more enthusiastic and the more ridiculous I am, the funner the talk is and the more engaged the audience is going to be and the more I can keep their attention. Because that's the number one problem with giving a public lecture is keeping people's attention for 45, 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like that's a long time for somebody 
to pay attention to you with like out explosions or something happening in the background. Um, so lots of arm waving jokes, memes, pop culture, you name it, you bring it in and make it fun. Um, and people will pay attention to you if you make it fun. But that, again, has been a learning experience. <laughs> it's the spoonful of sugar to get the medicine down. Exactly. Exactly. Callie, you are a very inspiring figure, um, but I'm curious, who inspired you while you were going through your undergrad? That's a great question. And I read this question. You sent me these questions in advance and I looked at it and I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> this was probably the hardest question on the whole thing. Um, it was usually people, anybody that knew more than me ex in inspired me. Like, I was like, oh my God, how did you know all that? Where does that go in your brain? You know, so I found myself gravitating to people that could answer my questions. And I was always like, I want to be one of those people that when people ask me a question, I have an answer. Like I have a good answer because I know. And so like whenever I run into somebody that has, that is outside of my field of expertise, it's like 50 questions immediately. I start on them like crazy. And I'm just like, well, what about this? What about this? What have you found here? What about this? I mean, like, I can't get enough. I'm just tell me more. Tell me more because I don't know about it. And if you have another person that's really excited about their field that is just like, yes, ask me more, ask me more. Um, it's always really exciting. And so those types of people really inspired me, like just their vast amount of knowledge and their willingness to answer questions and just to to, to be there and interact with you and, and just be as excited as you are about giving this information away. Um, so those people were definitely my biggest inspiration, the ones that felt like they knew more than they should. <laughs> like, and now I feel like I'm one of those people that know more than I should. But um, but yeah, I definitely looked up to to those types of people. I love that. You've got a pantheon of inspiration. Oh, yeah, because there's a lot of people that know a lot more than me about a lot of things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so many inspirations. Good. I'd like you to look to the long term now. Um, what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire, if you ever retire? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a David Attenborough. I'm just going to keep <laughs> doing this because I love it until I die. Um well, I I hope people remember me as just being a real fun person <laughs> that really loved the history of life. I mean, I'm on YouTube now and I'm on the internet, so I will be there as long as the internet is there. So there's that. I would like to write a couple of more books. Um, I wrote a children's book last year. It just came out this year. I'm hoping to write um, an adult book. Writing a ch I thought writing a children's book was going to be like the easy way out, the easy lift. It was not. It was not. Um, so I think I want to try an adult book next and then see how different they were in the writing process. I know the adult book would take a lot longer to write, um, but I'll try. My, I have an idea for it. I'll see if any publisher thinks it's a good idea, but we'll see. And what is your book's name? Uh, the, my current book that's out right now, you can get it wherever books are sold, is uh, Tales of the Prehistoric World. 
And it's over 60 stories of paleontological discoveries. And it was so much fun to put together, um, picking out all of these amazing discoveries and animals and how we figured it out. And it, it, I hope they ask me to do a sequel because I almost have another 60 stories to tell. So um, fingers crossed, everybody, that in the next few years, I'll get to write another a sequel to that book because uh, there's so much more. There's so much more to tell. Um, that's the great <laughs> thing about the history of life. I have like four billion years of life history to talk about is like impossible to run out of something to talk about. Um, but yeah, I hope, I hope that's kind of my legacy. Like I have had people <laughs> and then this is, this is high marks. This is, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm quite there yet, but I've had people call me like the Carl Sagan of paleontology and stuff. I'm like, that's a bit much you guys high praise, but well, I'm not quite to Carl Sagan yet. <laughs> like, I'm not a David Attenborough yet, but maybe someday, maybe someday I will reach that level for paleo, at least maybe not astronomy and cosmology, but or biology and natural, the natural world around us. But for ancient life, maybe, maybe I will be the Carl Sagan of ancient life, but um, that would be wonderful. I would, I welcome that. Sure. Heck yeah. Send me all over the world to talk about history of life. Love it. Love it. Um, but I hope, I hope that's what happens. I hope, I hope that's what my legacy will be. Um, it's just, yeah, Callie equals history of life. Like, boom, that's, that's what it is. <laughs> I think the only thing standing in between you and those two is just time. They've been at it a bit longer a bit. and, uh, that's, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing and you'll definitely achieve it. I can see the parallels. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks. Yep. I'm not going to slow down anytime soon. So yeah, watch out, watch out Attenborough <laughs> and Sagan. I'm coming for you. <laughs> a trio of, of scientists. Yeah. It's a trio a trio. But for my final question, um, where do you see your fields going in the future? Uh, the world is changing at lightning speed, and often the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable by the time they retire. Uh, so where do you see paleontology and science communication going? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate these changes coming down the pipe? Yeah, Whew, that's a great question. Um just in my time in paleontology, I've always I've already seen a switch. So old school paleontology was like, look <laughs> at this thing that I found. Ta-da! Here it is. Here's this paper about this thing, and here's where I found it, and here's how old it is. Ta-da! And we we still get a lot of that today. But what you see more, I think, a lot more nowadays is collaboration. And this is probably where I see our field going more than anything else is collaborating. So not only do you have your paleontologists out there, you have a geologist, you have a sedimentologist, you have a climate change person, you have all of these people working together to get this massive big picture of whatever you're looking at. And so the paper that comes out is huge. There's like 14 co-authors on it, you know, but everybody kind of has their expertise and they pull that all together to make this wonderful explainer of whatever they're working on. So I see collaboration as being like the number one thing um, in the future. It's probably going to be very hard to publish anything that's just look at this cool thing that I found. 
where did it live? How did it live? What was the climate like? What was the taphonomy? Like what I need to know more and there needs to be more to actually publish on this. Um, so I see collaboration and bigger picture kind of going into paleo for sure. Um, let's see what else, how else is paleo going to change? Ah, Yes, astrobiology. So right now we've got this wonderful little rover roaming around Mars trying to find signs of life. What if we find signs of life? What if we find stromatolites? What if we find fossilized life on Mars? That's a huge area of paleontology that could open up in the next, well, however long it takes us to return those dang samples from Mars, you know? So like five years Five years, five years, and we could have astropaleontology. You know, like we are now studying fossils of other planets, which what? That sounds like sci-fi. I know it sounds like sci-fi, but it, we are very close. We are very close. And I am I am under the impression that we are going to find stromatolites on Mars or we are going to find organic molecules that have a signature of life on Mars. It's like it's impossible. Three billion years ago, Mars would have looked almost exactly like Earth. What was there was no big difference. So why wouldn't life arise in, on both of these planets? Um, so that could be a huge field that we are just we're just scratching the surface of right now. So again, we're hoping to send people to Mars. Is there going to be a paleontologist on one of those crews? You know, that would be incredible because they always send a geologist you know you got to get the rocks these things they're rocky planets you gotta you gotta get rocks but now thinking about life and fossils on another planet would be absolutely incredible to have yeah be the first paleontologist to mars i can't it's not going to be me but that would be really, really cool. That would be absolutely incredible. So I think collaboration and then space science is kind of where the future of paleo could potentially go. Because again, learning about life on other planets is going to tell us a lot about how life evolved on our own planet. And maybe that life isn't as rare as we feel like it is right now. Maybe there's more out there to find. And so um, it'll be It'll be very interesting. I feel like that's a good science fiction book for right now. Somebody should write that book. Not me. I'm not a science fiction writer, but. Um, uh, I was going to say, you should pitch that to a movie studio, Jurassic Park in space. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Algal mounds in space. Yeah, it doesn't carry the same weight. But um, but yeah, so hopefully, hopefully. Fingers crossed that that's kind of a whole new subset of paleontology that's going to come up in the next 5, 10, 20, 50 years is is studying fossils on Mars. That would be nuts, right? Oh, my gosh. Can't We live in the future, you guys. We live in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and where do you see the future of uh, science communication? Ah. Holograms. I don't know. <laughs> I think we're science communication. I think you're going to get a lot more science communicators. I think that's what it's going to be. I think mm -hmm. every single field of science is going to be like, oh, we need our hype man or woman or hype person. That's what we need. We need a hype person for our field. Um, and so finding that hype person or persons, you know, you don't have to have just one. Um is going to be a big thing for science communication. Um, any big institution needs to have 
their own science hype person. Uh, so I think that you're going to see a lot more programs beyond a certificate, maybe an entire major of just science communication. I think you're going to see a lot more papers coming out with data about how important science communication is and the changes that it can make in the K through 12. And then for those future students going on to someday be science communicators. Um, so I think that you're just going to see an overall better understanding of it and a better understanding of the importance of science communicators. Because I feel like the people that are doing science communication now sometimes are screaming into a void, especially as you get into bigger and bigger and bigger institutions. And so sometimes people are like, why do you need to be doing this online? If if, if you do it online, they're not going to come to us physically. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, no, no, no. People still want to see dinosaur fossils in real life, mm-hmm. not just on a screen. But getting past, you know, sometimes the bureaucratic side of it if, and telling people why it's so important to have digital contact content, to be have a science communicator, have somebody that can go out, talk about all the cool things that your institution is doing and bringing more people into the fold those are your future researchers. Those are your future employees, you know? And so if you let science die in the K through 12 range, then you have nobody to fill these positions in the future. And so it's getting there. I definitely see the winds of change are already happening right now. Um, But I think you're going to see a lot more of that. There will be entire positions for a science communicator for NSF, a science communicator for whatever, you know, like big institutions all the way down to really, really small institutions are going to have a science communicator. Um, so practice your science communicating kids, because I'm pretty sure there's going to be a whole bunch of jobs for you in the future. <laughs> and also like grant money is allocated by politicians who are making these decisions based on the mood of the public. Yes. If the public doesn't see the value in, in your science, the grants will dry up yes. very fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And broader impacts is a huge portion of NSF proposals. So like how how is this this research that we're funding going to benefit the general public? And if you can tie in science communication to that, that's perfect. That's a great that's a great broader impacts. Um, and so, yes, funding is going to be tied to it. Jobs are going to be tied to it. I think it'll it's going to be a lot more important Um It's already really important, but it's going to get more important as we go on. You should write a paper on paleo science communication and call it broad impact. That's the Chicxulub impact. Can I make any good puns on the Chicxulub impact? Impacts with science communication. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, I could probably figure out some funny uh, title. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. And also people that can and look at data that I mean, like there is a lot of data for science communication out there. And so being able to go through all that data and make inferences and and help guide science communication. I think that that will be a really important field as well. So maybe you're not super great or comfortable talking in front of people, but you are a data whiz. Great. We need you. You know, so um, again, collaboration that comes back in. So always be looking for people that you can collaborate with, whether you're looking at research and, you know, the general sciences or within science communication. Collaboration is always great. It's funny. You've touched on the two most popular uh, trends that people seem to be in consensus of uh, interdisciplinarianism and 
data processing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that's what it is. That's where yeah. we're at now. So those those two things I think are are very, very important. And we are now just kind of figuring it out how important they are. So I see those trends just they're just going to keep going up and getting more and more important. <laughs> Well, Callie, I've had a blast talking with you this morning. Yes, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me on, Daniel. Oh, thanks for sharing your energy. Thanks for everything you do. (laughs) And thanks for just making this a fun morning. Yeah, well, thanks for all you do at UBC. I mean, you have so many cool things. I got to go on a tour of Daniel's area and all the fun things that you've put together and your collection was blowing my mind. Blew my (laughs) mind. Um, And all the fun things that you do. This podcast is wonderful. These questions are amazing. And I think that they really will help kids, you know, depending on who, you know, whatever way you go in life and in science, I think uh, these questions definitely help people figure that out. Um, and there needs to be more podcasts and, and science communicating, uh, like this. So thank you again so much for offering to have me on your podcast. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Have a great morning. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beattie designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week, here on Earth.